Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. When you think about the elite society of America's Gilded Age during the last quarter of the 19th century, many people credit Caroline Astor, the subject of a recent show, as the personality large and in charge who ruled and relished creating a society of her own specifications. But the truth is, she didn't act alone. And a certain particular gentleman, whose credentials were murky at best and blown significantly out of proportion at worst, joined forces with her to become the social sovereigns of the uppermost threads of the Gilded Age tapestry. His name was Ward McAllister, and in many ways, Ward McAllister was a professional snob. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. Join me every two weeks for a nice cup of tea and stories, secrets, style, and usually some scandal as we look behind the velvet curtains of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. If you were sitting in your highly polished wood pew in New York's venerable Grace Church on that morning of February 5th, 1895, you'd have pulled your black wool overcoat or your shawl more tightly around you as the frigid gusts of wind blew through the solemn neo-Gothic church each time the door opened to admit new mourners. A winter morning sun filtered through the brilliantly colored stained glass windows, casting spots of muted light on the stone floor. Expertly carved marble memorials placed around the heavy gray stone walls bore witness to the endurance of the names and the families of what had come to be called Old New York. Grace Church, built in 1846, had been New York's society church of the city's old guard since its construction. Architecturally, it was kind of a warm-up act for architect James Renwick Jr., who went on much later to create his masterpiece, the great St. Patrick's Cathedral, later in the century. But here, at Grace Church, generations of Rhinelanders, Van Rensselaers, Jones, and Skirmerhorns had all heard sermons, witnessed weddings, and paid their respect at funerals in this lofty, dramatic, and yet still intimate sacred space. By 1895, the year of this particular funeral, social New York had long moved on much further uptown along Fifth Avenue, closer to the Central Park. 
However, still, to have a wedding or a funeral at Grace Church, down on Broadway and 11th Street, said something. It said you were somebody. Ward McAllister was indeed a New York somebody. He, in fact, you could say, could be credited with defining, for anybody who cared, who the other New York somebodies were that mattered in social circles. He'd been the arbiter in waiting in the years before Carolyn Astor raised her torch in triumph and thus becoming her major domo, chamberlain, and high society henchman in shoring up the foundations of a new American social elite. Ward McAllister and Caroline Astor joined forces, each bringing a certain skill and perspective to the battle at hand. He was known as the go-to source for any matter of proper etiquette, as practiced by the great courts of Europe, of course. He could advise quite accurately on the proper years and producers of fine Madeiras and clarets. He could offer excruciatingly detailed instructions on form and language if one wanted to send the proper invitation, in order not to offend, you see. He had died at age 67 on January 31st, 1895, just about a week before what was left of his original social New York gathered to honor him. And it was a new social New York, the one he and Caroline Astor created that occupied most of the pews on that wintry morning. The thing about funerals at this point in New York social history is that the real summation of your life and achievements and legacy had little to do with what a verbose vicar had to say in a likely interminable eulogy. No, your legacy forevermore was sealed by just who exactly showed up to send you off. The McAllister funeral was an event. Ward McAllister had in some ways become famous for being famous. His pronouncements and pontifications were regularly reported in the press, and he was either adored, reviled, or just tolerated, depending on whether or not you had made it onto one of his lists, of who was acceptable in society, and one of, in his opinion, the very bedrock of it. Beneath the veils, under dark-plumed hats, and under the neatly brushed top hats that had entered the portals of Grace Church that morning was a collection of society's representatives that explained just exactly who Ward McAllister was, or rather, what society was, whether he was there to direct it or not. One of his pallbearers was Cornelius Vanderbilt II, long barred at the social gates even by McAllister himself, for the Vanderbilts were considered new money, and thus unacceptable. The Vanderbilts, thanks to sheer fortune and sheer will, were now found on the most desirable social lists. Alva Vanderbilt, the wife of Willie K. Vanderbilt, who clawed and pawed her way up the face of New York's social cliff, she had seen to that. Another pallbearer was Bradley Martin, who from a modest though prominent merchant family would wind up in a few years' time giving, with his wife bedecked in jewels at his side, some say the grandest ball ever given in the Gilded Age, a costume extravaganza at the Waldorf costing nearly $10 million in today's money. Bradley Martin's own daughter, Cornelia, had walked down that very same Grace Church aisle to marry the British Earl of Craven, thus capturing a title she brought the fortune just two years before. As a Handelian funeral march was played on the organ and McAllister's coffin, heavily adorned with wreaths and flowers, was borne up the aisle, you may have discreetly turned your head, with a great discretion, of course, and surveyed those attending through your veil. 
Aside from those who were there, it was those who were absent that sent the loudest messages, like a voice through a bullhorn. Mrs. Stuyvesant Fish, with whom McAllister had tussled socially, did not attend. Mrs. Perrin Stevens, one of the greatest and most ruthless social climbers of them all, did. But the most resounding social vacuum of all was the absence of Mrs. Astor herself, Ward McAllister's general and co-conspirator. The Astors were represented by John Jacob Astor IV, Caroline's son, but that was just for show. Caroline Astor refused to cancel a dinner party she had planned for that evening and proceeded to entertain despite this day of social mourning. Of all of Caroline's most dramatic snubs, this was perhaps the most definite and clear of all. And oddly, even McAllister's reclusive wife, Sarah, who had long ago retreated from society in disinterest, chose not to attend her husband's service. The New York scene following the Civil War was a society trying to find itself, to develop an identity and find meaning, at least to those with rapidly growing wealth. For Ward McAllister, and later with Caroline Astor, it was open season to create an American aristocracy and fill it with people who wanted its approval. If you looked at who was there, and it was quite a distance from what McAllister had first wanted, but then society had changed, blended and evolved into something new. So just who was Ward McAllister? This self-described gentleman who alternatively brought a society of sorts together, as much as by his own insistence on exclusivity, and still by his own definitions, tore it apart. And what was the final blow that resulted in Mrs. Astor cutting McAllister out of her life for good? This episode attempts to tell the tale. There were ironies in Ward McAllister's life, and the greatest one was that he himself seemed to have none. The great New York historian Eric Homburger summed up what Ward McAllister was about in his work, Mrs. Astor's New York. This great spokesman for exclusivity and renowned gastronomical expert was himself a social climber of studied and comical determination. McAllister's interest for us then is as someone who, having devoted much of his adult life to keeping parvenuism at bay, was himself an ambitious schemer, determined through flattery and emulation to win the acceptance of those who, in his own judgment, truly belonged to the city's aristocracy. Homburger goes on to say that Ward McAllister, quote, warned New York against people like himself. Ward McAllister was born in 1827 in Savannah, Georgia, to a prominent lawyer, Matthew Hall McAllister, and his wife, Louisa Cutler. Judicial blood ran in his veins, and that was shared not only by his father, but by his brother, named Hall. While proud of his Southern heritage, Ward clearly found the Society of the North more interesting and valuable and primed with opportunity. His mother had New England roots, Bostonian in fact, and in addition was related by cousins and marriage to Samuel Ward and his wife Julia, fixtures of New York society such as it existed in antebellum New York of the 1830s and 40s. His uncle's first wife had been the sister of William Backhouse Astor II, Carolyn Astor's husband, and it's likely through this distant connection that Ward gained access to the world of the great Mrs. Astor. Growing up, Ward regularly was brought to the then small remote seaside resort town of Newport, Rhode Island, which in its earliest days, long before the flamboyance later in the century, was a magnet for Southerners who wanted to travel north. 
As a young man of 21, he was sent to New York to live with a distant cousin of his father's to study, apprentice, and enter the business world. From his earliest years, the image he wanted to present to the world and the one through which he calculated would allow him to enter society was through his colonial roots. America was still young, although the great waves of immigration were beginning by the 1840s. In order to establish some kind of social credibility, people, or some of them, looked back to their revolutionary roots and prided themselves on their founding ancestry. Ward regularly told stories of his grandmother's connection with George Washington, and, well, if things had only been, you know, a little different, he, well, most certainly would have been our first president's grandson. He was also proud of a distant relative, Francis Marion, who during the American Revolution gained the name Swamp Fox due to his uncanny ability to escape and elude the British. The deep irony here, of course, and clearly lost on Ward himself, was to promote this idea to a society that a hundred years later, during the height of the European-focused Gilded Age, did everything in its power to turn itself inside out to become as British as possible. One detail from his early life in New York likely gives us a clue as to what Ward's real aspirations were and what his priorities were in realizing them. He'd inherited $1,000, which roughly translated to about $25,000 today, not insignificant, from a distant relative, and he took the entire sum to buy an elegant and extravagant set of evening clothes. There's that, you know, old social school of thought, perhaps one to which Ward subscribed, that says, if you have enough guts and the right clothes, you can get into anything. Hands down, Ward McAllister wanted to be at the center of society. Like a self-proclaimed Merlin, he wanted to dictate, direct, and stage-manage what he perceived as an upper-class world and make them fall under his spell. One of the events to which he managed to solicit an invitation was a ball held by the great Peter Skirmerhorn and his wife in their mansion on Lafayette Place and Great Jones Street in 1854. Costume balls were always favorites in elite circles since they required that period dress be made of the finest fabrics and jewels along with accessories had to all be created just for the occasion, thereby producing a billboard on your body that telegraphed expensive in the clearest of terms. The Skirmerhorns were one of New York's oldest families and had gained their significant wealth through shipping and in the merchant trade in the years before America manufactured and could transport much of anything on its own. Wandering among the Skirmerhorns and their guests that night, all attired to represent the Court of Versailles. And just a sidebar here, my friends, let's just remember that the French Revolution and the guillotine had stopped operation barely 50 years before. Wandering through those rooms, Ward knew that he was in the center of America's elite, such as it was at the time, small, moneyed, powerful, and dull. Ward was theoretically in New York to learn the craft of bookkeeping and begin a career. He almost immediately cast his accounting books to the floor in favor of working his way into every dinner, dance, and reception that he could, paying attention to every detail of what he heard and saw. 
Ward's brother Hall had taken up the family's tradition of practicing law, and the moment some shining flecks of metal glittered in a prospector's pan one morning early in 1848, Hall tore off to California along with more than 150,000 others desperate to make some cash on the exploding rush for gold. It took just a couple of bags of gold dust as proof sent back to Ward and his father to lure them as well to the wild west of San Francisco to join Hall as lawyers navigating the rights and property issues the gold rush had created seemingly overnight. The world McAllister found in the San Francisco of the early 1850s was one of extreme wealth generated not by old families with distinguished pedigrees going back to the revolution. No, this was a new kind of wealth accrued by anyone with a savvy entrepreneurial mind, a sharp ledger pencil, and a business determination of steel. Status had nothing to do with who your family was. No one cared. Closing this chapter on his social education and with a desire, he said, to lead a more gentlemanly life, Ward returned to New York after passing the Georgia Bar and married Sarah Gibbons, the daughter of a Georgia millionaire whose own financial situation would be enormously helpful and keep him away from bookkeeping jobs. It was at this point that perhaps Ward's greatest moment took place. At least, it was a decision that would form the persona that he worked himself into in order to swim with the social sharks in the last chapter of his life. He took his wife and set off for Europe. Now, to spend time in Europe wasn't really all that unique for one with some money and some unstructured time, simply because, particularly just before and just after the Civil War, given the fluctuations in American currency, it was much less expensive than living in New York. Ward's goal was to experience and observe a level of aristocratic life in Europe from as close a range as he could, learning every detail of introductions, social interactions, entertainments, and elements of dress. And then, of course, there was the food. Europe, and particularly France, was in the throes of the Great Restaurant Revolution and the court of Napoleon III and Empress Eugénie during the Second Empire of the 1850s and 60s. This was the center of fashion and gastronomy, where celebrity chefs were creating dazzling dishes served in grand buffets with exquisite silver, crystal, and porcelain of mycin and sève. Dining itself had become entertainment. Ward and Sarah spent two years traveling between London, Paris, and the spas of the German Black Forest and Florence, Italy. At one ball in Florence's 15th century Pitti Palace, Ward, wandering halls where the Medici once dined, and clearly exposed to this kind of lavishness for the first time, wrote, "'Certainly such feasting I have never before seen. It was here that I first learned what a ball supper should be, and what were the proper decorations for a ballroom.' The supper system was perfect. In one salon, large tables for coffee, tea, and chocolate. In another, tables covered with ices, foie gras, sandwiches. In the grand supper room, the whole of the wall was covered from floor to ceiling with shelves on which every imaginable dish was placed, hot and cold. The table in front of those shelves was lined with servants in livery. The favorite and most prized dish was cold sturgeon and then hothouse pineapple. In another part of the room, the wines were served, every wine grown in every corner of the globe. Ward McAllister 
was duly taking notes. One of his great qualities was that he knew, as a result of his observance and study at these grand balls and dinners in Europe, how to organize every tiny detail of a ball, party, or dinner better than anyone else in New York. It's now time to take a quick break and at least fill my own teacup here. And when we come back, we'll find Ward busy making even more lists. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and today we are taking a look at Ward McAllister, one of the forces along with his co-conspirator Caroline Astor, who shaped Gilded Age New York society. Returning to America, Ward headed back to Newport, his comfortable oasis from childhood still much quieter than it was certainly to become. He bought an estate called Bayswater Farm. Now, Ward wasn't really the gentleman farmer sort. He, in fact, rented sheep and cows to give it a more bucolic feel. What he really wanted was to test out his social management skills on that growing community of Newport before launching a full-scale assault on New York City itself. He carefully watched the new elite as they were beginning to decamp from the previously wildly popular Saratoga. Newport had sea air, grand boulevards to show oneself off, and as of the late 1870s, a brand new athletic and social club called the Casino. Ward began to make lists of his invitees to gatherings he began to present on the grounds of his farm. Invitations to one of his elegant gatherings, Alfresco, were sought after ones in Newport's growing social scene. He called his outdoor parties Fête Champêtre, which translates roughly into rural festivities. And this was just to give it all that desired French feel, you see. Ward McAllister's alfresco parties were talked about, coveted, and exclusive. Ward McAllister was over the moon. Back down in New York, something interesting was happening. Something had changed seemingly overnight. Post-Civil War, the invaders were approaching the gates. 
Men like those Ward had seen in San Francisco, men who had nothing of the old social order, but were beginning to make money, and not just money, but fortunes on the country's rapidly growing infrastructure. The one who represented the greatest and earliest challenge to the old Knickerbocker world was Mr. August Belmont. August Belmont had come to New York from Germany. He was born in a territory that was then part of France, but he was raised in Frankfurt. He'd been working for a period of time for the wildly rich European Rothschild family, overseeing their interests in North America. Moving to New York, he married the former Caroline Perry, certainly part of New York's old guard, and proceeded to show New York what grand living could be. Stories circulated of dinners for over 200 guests served on gold plate and with liveried servants in attendance. It was money that gave Belmont power, and the culture of European society that gave him style. August Belmont gave New York permission to show off. What startled Ward McAllister, as well as some of the others watching this show from their Knickerbocker drawing rooms, was just how powerful and influential, in fact, an outsider could clearly become. And there was seemingly nothing that could restrain him. So, in an attempt to prevent more cases just like this, Ward McAllister, ever more seriously, continued to make his lists. By the early 1870s, New York was, in the words of Eric Homburger, swirling in cash. Wall Street speculation was rampant, and untaxed investments were making bank accounts explode. Vast amounts of money were made and lost and made up again, and the spending power of these barons increased exponentially. Feeling that something must be done to control as much as possible those invading the city's malleable society— Ward McAllister made his first list that really attempted to define what he wanted to assemble as the real aristocracy of America. He was joined in his plan by, of course, Caroline Astor, who too wanted to reign over society, and in fact, she felt it was her duty, and it would be her legacy. Caroline's viewpoint was unwavering. It was essential to preserve the integrity of the old order, but the power of the new money could not be ignored. It simply needed a guiding but iron hand to shape it, direct it, vet it, and mold it. Supported by Mrs. Astor's patronage and counsel, Ward launched the plan. He created what was called the Society of Patriarchs, a vetting committee of sorts that would have respect for the past ancestry and wealth, but yet leave a door open to the new, as long as they conformed to Mrs. Astor's criteria of behavior and presentation. The idea was to sponsor a series of elegant balls, no expense spared, taking place in Delmonico's famous ballroom, and balls in which attendance would be tightly controlled and as a result would be the most exclusive, and that indeed was the operative word, the most exclusive events of the city. Ward McAllister understood the greatest marketing rule of all time, people want what they can't have. The Society of Patriarchs was made up of 25 men whom Ward and Carolyn Astor deemed the real bedrock of the city. The names included, not surprisingly, Astor, two of those, Skirmerhorn, Livingston, Jones, Phelps, Van Rensselaer, King, and Post, among others. Not a Vanderbilt to be found, at least at the beginning. New money, don't you know? The first ball was held in February of 1872 in the scene Delmonico's Grand Ballroom on 14th Street. 
Each patriarch was allowed to propose five men and four women as guests for each ball. The patriarch was responsible for ensuring the social acceptability of anyone proposed, and names could be deleted or substituted if they didn't meet the McAllister-Astor criteria. Both Caroline and Ward felt that Europe should form the cultural direction for their new society. America had no royal court of its own. In fact, it fought a war, you will all remember, to make sure that it didn't. However, now... They both felt it was time to create a new social court with a Queen Caroline and a scion, while intimately knowledgeable on the details required for admittance, would never be king. Ward needed Caroline for her own long lineage and her husband's family's money. She needed him for his ability to dictate as the result of his scrupulous research the etiquette and behavioral criteria to which their court would be required to adhere. Caroline, perhaps even more than Ward, knew that the court she would create ultimately would consist of a blend of the old, which Ward called the knobs, and the new, which he called the swells. New or old, Caroline would enforce the criteria by which all were judged. McAllister became the promoter of the court of Mrs. Astor. He famously took every opportunity to call her the Mystic Rose— an oblique and pompous reference from the Paradiso section of Dante's 14th century divine comedy in which the mystic rose is a celestial figure around which all other forces swirl. You would never guess that a white wine sauce could lead to the downfall and a major social rift, but I'm sure you all realize the kind of society we are talking about here. The incident in 1889 involved Mr. Stuyvesant Fish, another railroad maggot, and more specifically, his wife, the unabashed social climber and self-proclaimed public opponent of Carolyn Astor, Mamie Fish. One of her tactics to dethrone Mrs. Astor began with an attempted takedown of her major domo, Ward McAllister. Pontificating to anyone who would listen, it seems, Ward was identifying a great social faux pas while holding court one evening at the Union Club, describing a recent dinner hosted by Fish and his wife Mamie. Not enough wine, he announced, and what was infinitely worse is that the Fish's chef, presumably with the approval of Mamie, shock, horror, disgust, served a white wine sauce with one of the courses at dinner when it would have been much more correct to serve a brown sauce. Social punishment came when, as the chairman of the ball to celebrate America's centenary in 1889, Fish squeezed McAllister out of leading the quadrille with the president, Benjamin Harrison, attending. The president bowed out in the end, but Fish blamed McAllister and wasn't quiet about it. All this is to give you an idea of just exactly the kind of social sandbox we are playing in. The incident became known as the fishball. In order to fight back against his social snub by the fishes, Ward retreated to his public megaphone, The Printed Word, and he wrote a memoir called Society as I Have Found It, published in 1890. It is McAllister's attempt to tell us just how well-connected and knowledgeable he is. Eric Homburger quite accurately sums up the reaction to its publication. Society, as I have found it, caused nausea in New York society. Leading ultra-fashionables such as Mrs. William Vanderbilt and Mrs. Ogden Mills dropped McAllister from their visiting lists. Now that their own place in society was secure and the reaction against McAllister among the Vanderbilts was fierce. 
It was strongly felt that no gentleman would have written a book like McAllister's. While he hadn't named names, it was abundantly clear who he was writing about and name-dropping without, of course, actually dropping names. For those in society who shunned the press, and that included Caroline Astor, McAllister's book was beyond the pale. The winter season that followed just a few months after the book's publication saw a drop in attendance at the Patriarch's Balls as its members shied away from McAllister associations. And as a final coup de grace, Mrs. Astor herself, McAllister's own mystic rose, claimed she had, you know, a slight cold and just could not attend. The message was clear. Ward was out. But was he really? It's long been clear that controversy makes great copy, and as the titans of the newspaper publishing world know, it sells papers. Joseph Pulitzer, whose New York world took complete advantage of sensational journalism, offered Ward McAllister a regular column in his paper called Ward McAllister's Letters. As the Gilded Age began to gather steam from the early 1870s on, it was the power of the press that drove much public discussion, debate, and of course opinion. Unlike Carolyn Astor, who shunned the press of any sort, not for a gentlewoman, you see, Ward McAllister was seduced by his ability to offer pronouncements to a public ready to be told. And it was also the press that led, you could say, ultimately to his downfall. What's important here and explains a lot is that what Fifth Avenue really thought of McAllister was really not that important. There was a ready audience now of readers out there in the everyday streets who didn't attend the social functions of the elite and never would, but voraciously wanted to read every scrap from one of its supposed insiders. In Edith Wharton's novel, The Custom of the Country, and one of my very favorites, Wharton creates the memorable character of Mrs. Heaney, who's a manicurist who compulsively collects newspaper clippings of society events and gossip only to be read to her clients as she massages their usually gloved hands or files their never-chipped nails. Ward McAllister's final list, and the one which made him the most famous, landed just two years after the disastrous publication of his memoir. Although Mrs. Astor had definitely crossed him off her list, he remained active, less now, historians have written, as a social arbiter, but rather as a social reporter. New Yorkers awoke on the morning of February 16, 1893, and in certain sections of the city snatched the New York Times and scanned the pages to see if they could locate their own names. The headline of this particular article they were looking for read, The Only 400. Ward McAllister gives out the official list. Ward McAllister had begun to refer to polite society with the vague general number of 400 some years before, saying that he felt beyond that number you get people who won't really feel comfortable in a ballroom as well as making those who do feel ill at ease. The idea that it was the number chosen by Carolyn Astor as defined by the limits of her ballroom is a myth. The press, then as now, primed to seize on a hook and a soundbite proclaimed that that was then the number of real New York society. And bending to pressure by the press, McAllister made up a list and it appeared in print that morning. 
not quite comprising 400 names, fury erupted by those who were left out and a certain relief by some who had found themselves in. Alva Vanderbilt and Mamie Fish were at last there, Alice Vanderbilt, wife of Cornelius II, Paul Bearer at the funeral, the Bradley Martins, Mr. and Mrs. Ogden Galay, Mary Leiter, daughter of the partner of the Marshall Field Fortune, Francis Burke Roach, Nay Work, the great-grandmother of Princess Diana, and of course, Morgans, Schuylers, Sloanes, Van Rensselaers, and of course, more Vanderbilts. Ward McAllister passed away on January 31st, 1895. His passing was unexpected. Sources said he was ill for about a week at home with the grip. His obituary, published the next day, appeared on the front page of the New York Times, and his funeral was scheduled for February 5th at New York's old Grace Church. As the mourners sat in Grace Church on that February morning that opened this episode, offering some kind of memorial to McAllister and his life and contributions, it would have been abundantly clear if we, with our modern eyes and perspectives, had been able to join them and consider that perhaps his services were effectively no longer needed and thank you very much society had moved on. Many historians feel that the Gilded Age really ended with the turn of the century in just a few years although aspects hung on as the progressive era took hold and the world marched towards a new war. By 1897, the patriarchs had disbanded. Even Belmont had been admitted by the 1880s, and Mrs. Astor herself had left the social stage in ill health a few years before her passing in 1908. None of this, even with Ward McAllister's passing, meant that society had stopped moving. No, it continued moving as it always would. But now, with new hostesses, with names, among others, like Vanderbilt and Fish. The new generations came, and they continued to expand and adapt the rules. Until, of course, by the 1920s, some said there were no rules at all. What really drove Ward McAllister is difficult to pinpoint other than an intense desire to be at the center of a society of his own creation. Perhaps the greatest advantage he had was that his efforts came of age at a time when America was searching for an identity, and parts of it, anyway, were ready to be told what that identity was. Ward McAllister must be credited with the fact that he threw a good party and put on a good show. We all know the best parties lie in making sure every detail is correct, every crease is ironed, every glass is polished, and the right menu served to the right people who will mix well. Ward McAllister had an open opportunity to attempt to create his aristocracy and accompanied by Carolyn Astor at the helm, both, you could probably say, were at the right place at the right time. To do what he did, he had to perfect the art of the snob. It's something one just has to learn. And he had to create a persona for himself that was not so different from the invented personalities that he claimed to disdain. Again, historian Eric Homburger explains the point. We can best think of Ward McAllister as an ambitious outsider who set out, in the name of exclusivity, to make the nation's richest families more aware that they had a shared sense of corporate identity. To do this, he had to invent a new Ward McAllister, who was something more than the son of a Georgia lawyer, yet another Southerner with good manners and not quite enough money. 
Who was he, after all, to issue the dictates that he did? It reminds us of what one often tells a child. It's so because I said so. For so many in that small, restricted, late 19th century New York social world trying to hang on to some sort of social standing, and for those desperately trying to secure it, what Ward McAllister said simply was so. But I just wonder, however, what would have happened if he just left all of it alone? Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. I invite you to join the show as a patron. Visit patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support truly helps me continue to research, edit, record, and create material for the show. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, leave a review as your calling card. Join me every two weeks for another episode and another nice cup of tea. And so, I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 